Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Uh, We're continuing in our study in Matthew this morning, so if you could take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, as we continue in our study uh, throughout the book of Matthew. From the very first sentence, sorry, yikes, trying to get this, my notes uh, situated, but there's a magnet strip on the back of this iPad that would not want to budge. But from the very first sentence of the book of Matthew, it becomes abundantly clear what Matthew's goal in writing this book is. It is to convince his audience that Jesus is the ultimate king with ultimate authority. If there's anything that Matthew emphasizes over and over and over again throughout his book, it is the authority of Jesus. From the very first sentence of the book in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, that he has the authority as king. And the very first thing that Matthew does is to establish Jesus' authoritative right as the messianic king. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to allude to Old Testament prophecies, and he points to Jesus as their fulfillment in chapters 1 through 4. He then emphasizes Jesus' authoritative words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And he concludes that section with the statement that Jesus taught not as the scribes, but he taught as one having authority. So Jesus came with authority, Matthew says. And Jesus taught with authority, Matthew says. And while Matthew's goal, one of his goals, is to establish Jesus as the promised messianic king that would bring hope to Israel, it is not his only objective. As a matter of fact, it's not even his main objective. His main objective is to convince his audience that this person who is the fulfillment of the Messianic King promise is not only the Messianic King sent from God, he not only has authority as someone sent from God, but that he is, in fact, God himself. And that is the subject of chapters 8 and 9. That Jesus didn't just come the way that God promised the Messiah would come. He doesn't just teach the way that God promised the Messiah would teach. But he has the authority to do things that only God can do. And so in Matthew chapter 8, as Pastor Brandon has been uh, teaching through the past few weeks, Jesus, or Matthew, establishes Jesus' authority as God, and he begins to build this case. The authority that Jesus displays in these chapters draws a definitive line in the sand, and it climaxes in this passage this morning. That if you read chapters 8 and 9, you must come to one of two conclusions. You either must believe that Jesus is God, And he has authority because he is God. Or 
you must condemn him as a blasphemer. Chapter 8 begins that process. Matthew begins to build that case. And today, that case is unmistakable. We've already witnessed Jesus' authority in chapter 8 to heal a leper with a touch of his hand, or to heal a centurion's servant without even seeing him, or to restore Peter's mother-in-law from a severe illness. Clearly, Jesus had authority to heal disease. But that's not all that we saw in chapter 8. On top of that, Jesus demonstrated beyond physical ailments that he had authority by casting out demons from many with just one word. And even casting out a legion of demons from two men, showing that Jesus not only has authority over physical ailments, but Jesus has authority over the entire spiritual realm. And on top of that, we also observed the episode of Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has authority over disease. Jesus has authority over spiritual warfare and over uh, spiritual beings. And Jesus has authority over nature itself. And even though all of those things are problems that mankind faces, I mean, disease is obviously a problem. Natural disasters can be a problem. Demonic warfare can be a problem. Some of you guys have been fighting demonic warfare. And you know it's a problem. You know it for a fact. And although all of these things are a problem, they are not the problem. All of these authoritative displays were leading up to Jesus' audience to Jesus being able to reveal to his audience the ultimate reality that he is God who is the only one who can forgive sins. You see, throughout history, figures like Moses and other Old Testament prophets were sent from God and they could do many wonderful works on the authority of God. But none of them could accomplish what we are about to see Jesus do. None of them could address humanity's most basic, deepest need. And only Jesus comes on the scene and has the authority to forgive sins. So this morning as we look into the Scriptures, we're going to see in this narrative, we're going to see the unwavering faith of the paralytic man. And it's his unwavering faith that welcomes the forgiveness from Jesus. But it is also the same forgiveness that prompts the failure of the religious leaders and instills awe and fear in the hearts of the people. So let's look this morning at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And so he got into a boat, and he crossed over, and he came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic man on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic man, <clears throat> Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. 
And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named, just kidding, we're going to go into that next week. I read a little bit too far. And people marveled at the power that God had given to man. And so we see Jesus, after he was driven out of uh, Gadara because of people's fear of him, which, by the way, is the same fear uh, that people in this audience also have at the end of uh, this episode. But Jesus casts out a legion of demons from two men, and, and the people in that area, they see what Jesus is able to do, and they are in awe and fear, and they say, listen, go. There is no one that can do what you can do, and it unsettled them to the point where they asked Jesus to leave, and so he goes into the boat and he departs and he goes to his own city or his new own city, right? Because remember, his hometown was Nazareth. But Nazareth had already tried to kill him. And so Jesus had a new hometown, Capernaum. Jesus, when he was chased out of Nazareth, he didn't go back there to perform uh, any more wonderful works because of their unbelief. As a matter of fact, they rose up and tried to kill him and would have, except for he's God and it wasn't his time. <laughs> and so he passed through them unharmed and he goes and he takes up residence in Capernaum. And it says in Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, and again he entered Capernaum after some days and it was heard that he was in the house. And so Capernaum was his new residence. It could also be translated that, and he entered Capernaum after some days and was heard that he was at home. And so he leaves from Gadara, he comes back to Capernaum, and people hear that he's there. And so, of course, they all want to gather and to see Jesus. And at this time, Jesus' ministry was so popular, and of course it would be. Uh, there are Jewish historians who have literally written that they are, they are amazed by the fact that when Jesus' ministry was finished, that there was even a sick person left in Israel. You know, we read about all the accounts, but the people that were there, the eyewitnesses, they say there are so many things that happened that, that it's unreal. John even tells us this, that he says, if we were to record everything that Jesus did, the books could not, or the world could not contain the books that could be written. We know that we have what we need in God's word, but there's so many things that Jesus did, and of course, everyone wants to see Jesus. This is probably the height of his popularity. And at the height of his popularity, there's a group of guys who love either their friend or their relative. We're not really quite sure what their relationship is, but they love, they love this paralytic man, and they want to see him healed. Of course. This man who was ostracized for years, this man who is unable to make a living for years. And we see this in uh, chapter, or chapter 9 of verse 2. It says, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic man lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic man, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. We also see a parallel account of this in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 19. It says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, teachers of the law sitting by who 
uh, <clears throat> had come out of the town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, who they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And so these men obviously have faith. And Luke tells us that there were so many people that gathered to see Jesus that there was absolutely no way that they were going to get into the house where Jesus was. But they knew that Jesus had the power to heal this man. And I believe that there's something even special about the faith of this man. I believe that this man didn't just believe that Jesus could enable him to walk, but that this man knew that his need was to be saved from sin. See, back in this culture and in this time, the religious leaders had this false belief that if something was wrong with you, if you were blind, if you were paralyzed, if there was some kind of physical ailment that you suffered from, that it was because of something that you or possibly your parents had done. We see this idea in the Old Testament in Job chapter 4 and verse 7. As Job's friends finally break their silence, they say to him, Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or who were the upright ever cut off? Job's friends say to him, Listen, Job, something's happening here. Remember Job? Loses everything. And to his friend's credit, by the way, uh, they come and they sit with him and say nothing for like a week. And when they finally do break the silence, they say, listen, Job, we've got to ask, what did you do? And that's the theology of the time. And we see that this carries all the way over into the New Testament, even into Jesus' inner circle. In John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now as, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And so it even leaks into the theology of the disciples who had spent a lot of time, a lot of intimate time with Jesus. And they are passing by one day, they see a blind man and they say, hey, Jesus, curious, why is this man blind? Is it, is it his fault or is it his parents' fault? Whose fault is it that God condemned him to be blind? And Jesus says, um, neither. Neither him or his parents had sinned that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Does he mean that this man had literally never sinned? Well, no. <laughs> we know that because the Bible tells us that there is no one who is righteous. Does he literally mean that his parents had never sinned? No, obviously for the same reason. But Jesus' point is that this man is not blind because of a direct result of his sin. He is blind as a result of sin, but not necessarily his. We see this in Jesus' theology in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, where we read, There were present at the season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they offered such things? 
And when Jesus was asked about different degrees of sin, he says, well, do you think that things happen to people for specific sins and specific reasons? He even goes on to say, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is Jesus' point? His point is, is disease and ailments and problems that we face, are they the result of sin? And Jesus says, yes, but not the way you think. They're the result of sin. They're the result of the curse on the world. They are, they are an infection that everyone has to deal with. But when you see somebody who suffers from one of these ailments, your conclusion should not be, wow, that guy has a problem. Your conclusion should be, wow, look at the cost of my sin. Jesus says, yes, it is the result of sin, but you're drawing the wrong conclusion. The conclusion that you should be drawing is this. How is my standing before God? Because just like them, I will also die one day. Referring specifically to those on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. Jesus says, listen, the lesson that you take away is you will one day perish as well. And how is your standing before God? So this man, when he's brought before Jesus, is keenly aware of what everyone else thinks. There is a crowd there. They are pressed so tightly into the house. And he knows that if somehow, some way, he can get before Jesus, that based on everything he knows about Jesus, that Jesus will have mercy. But he also knows that all his life, he has laid on that bed and people have passed by and they have said, who sinned? Is it this man? He's been cast out for his entire life as an unclean pariah simply because he was paralyzed. He knows that if he's going to be lowered into that house, that everyone in that house is going to see him and think, gross. He knows that if there's anything he needs from Jesus, it is release from sin. And so he gets lowered into the house and he gets placed before Jesus. And Jesus sees him and he says to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now the first thing that he tells this man is to be of good cheer. And there's two different types of cheer that Jesus could be talking about. It, it's more probably more literally translated courage. Be of good courage. And there's two types of courage that somebody could have. There's the type of courage that somebody could have if they were a character in a scary movie, Right? And you're, you're watching this film, and one character, for some inexplicable reason, knows that there is a monster in the woods, but they've got to go out and explore the woods. And so they go out and they explore the woods. You as the audience know, they're dead. 
Even them as the character know, because many people have been killed before them. The character knows they're dead. The monster will get them. So what does he do? Well, he strolls through the woods and he sings a song. Why? To distract himself from the fact that he's going to die. There's the kind of courage that is like, hmm, I really would rather not think about the thing that makes me afraid. And that's not what Jesus means here. <laughs> he's talking about another kind of courage, which is, son, be of courage because the thing that is the source of your problem is about to be wiped away. There's another kind of courage that is able to go on because you know that the source of your problem no longer exists. And that's the kind of courage that this man is told to have by Jesus. Be of good cheer. Why? Because you're about to walk. No, that's not what he says. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And I believe that this man is keenly aware of his need to be forgiven from sin. So much so that you don't see him immediately get up and walk. I believe that in his heart, he was relieved by the fact that Jesus himself was saying to him, your sins are forgiven. And no matter what anybody else said about him, no matter what anybody else said to him throughout the rest of his life, he could know that Jesus himself had said, your sins are forgiven. And so this man, who had all his life been an outcast, a pariah, a nothing, a nobody, an object lesson of sin, was now forgiven. And the word that Jesus uses for forgiven is that your sin has left you. It is gone. The same idea that we see in Psalm 103 and verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or Micah chapter 7 and verse 19, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities and he will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Jesus was saying to this man, be of good courage. You know that the source of your problem is sin and that sin is removed from you, never to be brought up again. It is gone. On my authority, I guarantee it. And Jesus dispenses to this man what his greatest need is because it is forgiveness that is God's greatest gift that meets man's greatest need. Now, of course, this is the climax of Matthew's point, right? Jesus has authority over sickness. Hmm, I wonder why. Jesus has authority over demons. Hmm, I wonder why. Jesus has authority over all nature. Hmm, I wonder why. And here, Matthew explicitly puts this account in here for the express reason that Jesus has authority because he is God. And so next we see the failure of the religious leaders. When they see this, when they see Jesus say to this man, be of good cheer. The source of all your problems is now gone. Your sin is forgiven. They immediately respond in their hearts. In verse 3 it says, and at once some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. It is, it is very interesting 
and that there's this exchange between the religious leaders and Jesus, but throughout this entire account, the only one that actually speaks is Jesus. The people who lower this paralytic man down, they don't speak. The paralytic man doesn't speak. The scribes and the Pharisees don't speak. Jesus speaks, and Jesus is literally in three different ways declaring himself to be God. Number one, these religious leaders actually rightly assessed the situation. They just made the wrong conclusion. They said, listen, if this man says that he's able to forgive sins, he is saying that he's God. And so, immediately when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they reason within themselves, this man blasphemes. To which, Jesus declares himself to be God in a second way. He knows their hearts. They say nothing. He knows the evil that is in their hearts. They did not believe in, on two different accounts. They did not believe, number one, this is the most obvious one that they're wrong on, they did not believe that Jesus was God, and they did not believe that he had the authority to forgive sin, which is Matthew's whole point, which is what he's been working towards. Secondly, they did not believe that sin could be forgiven by asking for it. But instead, they believed that you must earn salvation. And so in their hearts, they are thinking two things. One, Jesus is not God and he blasphemes. Two, they are thinking, who does this guy, Jesus, think he is healing a sinner who is so sinful that he's paralyzed, that God smote him with paralysis? That's their thought process. Those are the two reasons that most often keep people from salvation, by the way. Belief that you can earn it or belief that you do not need it. And the scribes and Pharisees that day were guilty of both. Jesus doesn't have the authority and it must be earned, they thought. Jesus, perceiving these thoughts, turns and says to them, why do you think evil in your hearts? I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine thinking about somebody? You know, me thinking about, just pick a random name, about Timothy. There's no Timothy's here today, right? About Timothy. Man, Timothy's really poorly dressed today. Oh, Timothy. Is your name actually Timothy? Like, is that your full name? All right, Timothy. <clears throat> I look at him and I say, you're really poorly dressed today. Or I think this in my mind. And Tim turns around and says, hey, I like this outfit. <laughs> How creepy would that be? That's exactly what happens here. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus turns around and says, hey, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which declares him to be God in two different ways. One, who is it that can see the heart? Only God. We know this from uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. They said nothing. Jesus turns around and says, I see your heart. Why is your heart evil? And biblically, the definition of evil is someone who reasons in their heart against God. So Jesus is saying, this man is forgiven, I'm God, because I have the authority to forgive sin. He's also saying, I see your heart, I am God. He's also saying, you reason in your hearts against me, I am God. And so in three different ways, Jesus declares himself to be God. 
We see in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 to 4, that Ananias and Sapphira reasoned in their heart against God, and that was the definition of evil. And so Jesus says to these men, why do you think evil in your hearts? Which is just his way of saying in three different ways, listen, I'm God and you know it. If you know the scriptures, you know that I'm God because I forgave this man his sin. I know your heart and you reason against me. But to further put a nail in the coffin, (laughs) Jesus doesn't stop there. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, he says. Your sins are forgiven you. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And so Jesus, knowing that all of this is going on in their hearts, had purposefully forgiven this man's sin before he gave him the command to get up. And when the scribes and the Pharisees reasoned within themselves, this man blasphemes, Jesus says, listen, I can even prove that I've forgiven this man's sin. You think that it is because of this man's specific sin that he is paralyzed. That's not the case. The case is that because of the curse on mankind, this man is paralyzed. You've already seen me, Jesus says. You've already seen me cast out demons. You've already seen me heal ailments. You've already seen me do all these things. Now I'm telling you today that the reason I'm able to free people from disease is because disease is caused by the curse. The reason why I'm able to free people from demons is because demon possession is caused by the curse. If I can free people from the symptom, I can free people from the source. So I'm going to prove to you that this man's sins are forgiven. If his sins are not forgiven, according to your own theology, right? If I'm not God and I cannot forgive sins and you believe that this man is paralyzed because of his sin, then he will not get up and walk, will he? Again, Jesus is the only one speaking. But they must intellectually acknowledge, if this man does not get up, then we're right. But if he does, then Jesus actually did forgive his sin. According to their own theology, that must be their conclusion. And so Jesus then says to this man, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose, and he departed, and he went home. (laughs) Proving his sins were forgiven. Now there's two responses that you can have. One is the response that we've already talked about of the scribes and the Pharisees, and the other is the response of the crowd is fear, fell upon the people. It says in verse 8, Now when the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Now the Bible is not clear here about the kind of awe that fell on each person's heart. I believe that there are some people that day that awe fell on their heart, and they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and they came to faith. But in a large crowd setting, 
all of them were amazed. I believe some came to repentance, and some were just like, didn't know what to think, just wow. But they were all amazed, which is the right response. We see this word fear throughout the New Testament. We see it in Matthew 14 and verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Same word. Or in Luke chapter 8 and verse 37, Then the, mul- the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. We also see it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done throughout the apostles. And this word for fear is used many other times throughout the New Testament. But every single time it is used, it is always used in reference to people being awed, wowed, and amazed at something that God has done. And that's the correct response. And so as Matthew has been working up to this climactic, decisive moment, Matthew's entire point in the way he has arranged his book is that he is making the point that Jesus is the Messiah, promised from God. He is the authority of the Messiah. But not only does he have that, he's the authority of God because he is God. This, in, in Matthew's gospel, this is the moment. The line has been drawn in the sand. Everyone knows who Jesus is. And there's only two choices left. He is God, and you place all your faith and hope in him. Or he is a blasphemer who must be disposed of. And so the question that each and every one of us must face this morning is, when confronted with the authority and the reality of Jesus. How will you respond? Will we respond like the scribes and Pharisees who don't really believe what Jesus says and disregard him in our day-to-day life? Or will we be like the crowd who is so awed so amazed, so in wonder of the authority of Jesus that we, like this paralytic man and his friends, place all of our hope, all of our faith in him.